going on. Mike Gallagher did like 37 broadcasts. And uh, then we got football basketball coming up this week. So, uh, yeah, hope everybody else had a good bye week. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That time of year, isn't it? It is. The crossover, the, the uh, can Jay Sandoz stay married month of November that comes around every single year. Surely not the only month you have to ask that question, but the only one because of sports. <laughs> that is a very good point. So, uh, yeah, uh, we got basketball coming up. We've got football coming up. A lot to talk about. No ETSU football to recap. That doesn't mean there's not football we're going to talk about because right. Southern Conference action was hot and heavy on Saturday. So we'll recap that. We'll also talk to the head women's volleyball coach at ETSU, Benavia Jenkins. We'll talk about uh, her squad, a big win. Uh, watch Fridays to get a chance at least to get some sort of uh, sports in on Friday before all the trick-or-treating just overtook uh, all of my being on Saturday. Did you dress up? I did. I did. We were the tune squad. Mm-hmm. I was Foghorn Leghorn. Yep. Nice. Yep. So that was pretty good. It was fun. It's a lot of – also, I can wear a, I wore a chicken head so that nobody knew who I was as I walked down the street until they recognized my kids. Well, that's fair, too. <laughs> um, then uh, what else we got? Oh, the Bucks basketball, Bonanza, Blue Nanza, Buckets, uh, Winners, something. Uh, B5, uh, whatever. And then. Uh, By the way, I'm looking at Foghorn Leghorn, and there's varying aspects of. Yeah, I don't know sure. if it's different parts of his life where he's more fit and then just more Jay Sandos. Uh, but it kind of follows, I think, maybe like you during your younger years. And, and maybe we can match up a timeline of Foghorn Leghorn's life versus yours and like have one of those uh, transit, you know, those transition like progression photos of players over their careers. Like mm-hmm. you and Leghorn, and you just turn into Leghorn at the end. Or Leghorn turns into you, one of the two. Uh, I'm probably turning into younger Leghorn than probably older Leghorn. I'm guessing. When the, did he? When, I don't did the know dad bod rich. get? Yeah, I, I don't know either. I don't know. And I used to love watching. That was one. Of, that was my dad's favorite character. So we always watched that whenever it was on, especially if it was Foghorn Leghorn. So, uh, yeah. Boy, the Wikipedia see. on Foghorn Leghorn is kind of dark. A deceased father and I mean, unnamed grandson. I, what is what is all this? I don't know. Walkie-talkie hockey, first appearance. Wow, okay. I'm okay, really yeah, all right, there we go. Uh, you throw out a reference that I don't really totally understand, and then I start to learn things as I look for like five seconds, and then so, I'm completely off course. So transitioning from dark, are you going either Waffle or Citadel to start with? Wow. Sandos and the sidekick. So I like to bury the negative underneath mountains of positive. So we're going to talk about Sanford and BMI. First, though, the headline out of this weekend for ETSU fans is that they unfortunately get no help from any of the underdogs. All one-loss teams stay with one loss. 
Or, JC, I know before we do talk about the individual games, is there an alternate view of this? Do you actually like the teams at the top winning to bolster the strength of the conference? You've said it before, you think that a more top-heavy conference is better for a conference's perception, uh, at least in the committee's eyes, and maybe national perception as well, just amongst fans and pundits. So zero or one-loss teams, do you believe more of those is better? And therefore, as the SoCon attempts to get multiple teams into the FCS playoffs, do you actually think these results from this weekend help the SoCon? I think it helps the SoCon. I think, the matter of fact, it got a little bit of play from a couple of guys that cover FCS that said, look out, Southern Conference is definitely a multi-bid, could be a three-team bid league. So we'll just have to see, again, how that shakes out. But how that happens is those teams continue to win. Now, obviously, VMI and Mercer got to uh, come to ETSU. Obviously, they're going to take losses. Right. And Chattanooga's got potential uh, loss when they go on the road at Mercer. And obviously, there's other games that people have to play. You just want to yada yada that. But there are... Uh, situations where these one-loss teams will be able to play each other and be able to figure it out. But uh, really the key is you want ETSU to be obviously VMI Mercer, and you want them to win the rest of their games. And then for Chattanooga, they have to lose one more if you want to be the conference champion. You know, if they lost two Mercer, that would be better than if they, you know, dropped the game to Wofford or, or anybody else. So I am pro top-heavy league. Craziest game of the day, easily. Stanford, VMI. On Thursday, we talked about how this traditionally is a game that you project out at about 100 combined points. We wondered if that would be the case because Stanford was coming off a bad week against Chattanooga. VMI with a strong running game. Would the team slow down? A big fat no came from Jay Sandos, and a big fat no came on the field this weekend. And more interesting than the amount of points scored is the way this game unfolded. Stanford scored 38 first-half points. Not VMI, the favorite at home. Stanford 38 in the first half. At one point, they led by 21. It was 38-17. to 17. I know you won't believe this, but we were doing a volleyball broadcast at the time. Patrick Ball, who is the assistant director of creative services, comes on my headset. He's directing the match and says, hey, it's 38-17 uh, right now. Stanford's on top of VMI. And I was like, Q52-45 VMI with the victory. Now, I fell six points short on the VMI side, but Sanford does end up with 45, and after being up 45-27 to 27 with five minutes left in the third quarter, give up a couple of rushing touchdowns, then with 3.14 to go in the game, Michael Jackson caps off his outrageous day with a seven-yard touchdown reception to make it 46-45. That would be the final. After Sanford made it 45-27, they didn't advance past their 38 again. Two first downs on their final four drives, and on their last drive, if it's not an interception from Liam Welch being thrown. Instead, Michael Weiss fumbles after a completion. Ethan Castleberry recovers. Game over. 91 combined points. Nearly 1,200 yards of total offense. Over 800 combined yards of passing offense. Michael Jackson and Leroy Thomas combined for 354 receiving yards. Coming into the year, Jacob Harris, obviously the number one option. If I had told you that he would have one catch in any game, you'd probably say VMI is going to lose. But if you look at the stats, he's actually their third leading receiver right now behind Jackson and Thomas. Jackson has been the most impressive and sort of got clued in on him, right? The Chattanooga game, he had those two huge catches uh, down the field for scores that got them in a position to tie the game, go to overtime, and then beat Chattanooga. So I, I've kind of watched him make plays like that. The catch he made for the eventual game winner was a one-handed reception in the corner of the end zone. That was quite incredible that I enjoyed VMI's broadcast teams. Like, hey, let's take a look at this great one-handed catch. And then they shot. Nobody had the shot of it. It was a, It's the <laughs> most confusing broadcast. Number one, they have the autofocus on, so 
if you wonder if the game is out of focus, it is all the time because it's an autofocus. It's on focus in, so it's very difficult to watch. They've missed touchdown catches left and right. They did in the Wofford game. That being said, Michael Jackson, if you can catch him, uh, it's I guess it's like a unicorn. If you can catch him on film catching a one-handed touchdown catch, please submit to somebody because I'm sure he would like to remember those catches that nobody has film of. That being said, he's incredible. They're just throwing jump ball after jump ball to him. He's averaging 16 yards a catch. He's been great. They're using a the tight end more Thomas. And then last year they moved Harris all over the field and just try to get all kinds of matchups for him. And this year, they've just, they're pretty much lining up four wide or three wide in the tight end, and everyone's running the routes. And right now, they're just you know making the right reads and finding and trusting that their players are going to make plays for Sanford. I felt bad for Liam Welch because I watched the last couple possessions. I watched it early and then came back to it later. And the last couple possessions, he's hitting guys – right where you want it, you know, in the hands, in between numbers, whatever, to get a first down, and then they get lightly bumped, and it's basically like they're trying to get a charge call. They're just flopping, and the ball goes flying, and it wasn't like Ronnie Lott or, or, you know, or Steve Atwood or whatever, Atwater's coming over there and blowing people up. I mean, VMI is just, you know, making normal contact, and the Sanford receivers have acted like they've never been hit when – trying to catch a football, and then he finally gets somebody to catch it, and they fumble it. It was The last two drives, I felt bad because Welch threw all but one pass pretty much on the money, and nobody, if they were touched by a defender, could hang on to the football. And even when they did catch it, they got touched by a defender. They did fumble the football. I, it's very confusing. I thought when VMI went for two, didn't get it, and they had to go for two. They wanted to go up three. I thought, boy, this sets up for Sanford to finally get over that hump get a win instead of having some tough losses. And I know they had the Wofford miss the field goal or whatever against them recently, and they got a win. But I felt like they needed to win one instead of somebody missing something or doing something to where they uh, couldn't win. I needed them, for me, Sanford do that, and they didn't do it. And so give VMI credit. They, anybody that plays Sanford should basically know you're going to have opportunities to score. In the first half, the teams combined for almost like 700 yards of total offense. That's not even including a 61, 62-yard punt return. But it, it, it was a typical VMI-Sanford game that they've had the last three years. It was high scoring. It came down to the wire. This is the first one that got overtime, but it was a one-point difference. So, uh, I, you know, if you ever picked a game to watch next year, whenever VMI and Sanford played, if it doesn't conflict with the Bucks, I think you should watch it. VMI moves to 4-1 and one in the league. They're one of three 4-1 teams along with ETSU, who was off, and Chattanooga, who – one probably the most forgettable game of the weekend, Jay Sandoz. The conditions at chat were much like the conditions here in Johnson City. A little cold, wind came and went, but most importantly, rain and lots of it, which led to maybe the worst day for a quarterback in the league this year. Jace Wilson, 4 of 14, 47 yards and an interception, sacked four times as well. Just really not a fun day all around for Wilson. I've got some sympathy for him on this one, was facing such an impossible situation to navigate. Devin Wynn doesn't play with a groin injury either to make matters worse for the Paladins. Take out a garbage-time 44-yard run for Devin Abrams on the Paladins' last drive when the game was already decided, and Paladins average just three yards per carry on 28 other carries, which obviously is going to be a problem. Also, a negative working against Wilson. As for Chattanooga, just another day where Alim Ford and Tyrell Price each go over 100 yards on the ground. The backbreaker in this one came in the fourth, I think. Chat took over up a touchdown just 10 seconds into the final frame and 16 plays in nearly nine minutes off the clock to go down and extend their lead from 7 to 10. But it might as well have been you know, 30 at that point.
frustrating to me because if you have a two-possession lead, six minutes left, and the conditions that they were having to play in, just no chance for Furman. This was disappointing a little bit for me because I wanted to see if Furman could prove me wrong and match up well with one of, if not the league's top team on the road and stay in the title hunt. Unfortunately, I think that chance was taken away a bit from them and from the viewer because of weather. If they play in perfect conditions, I still think that Chattanooga probably wins by 10 to 14, but we won't know between these two sides because the one and only time that they do play, they had to face a deluge in just horrendous conditions. Well, if you go back to the last three quarters against ETSU, okay, so just stay with me here, 14 minutes time of possession, last three quarters versus ETSU, just 20 in the whole game against Chattanooga. I mean, 34 minutes and seven quarters, nobody wins. I mean, nobody wins. 40 minutes time of possession for Chattanooga and watch the game, watch most of it. It was brutal to watch. It was a great – Chattanooga does exactly – they're very good – football team because they do exactly what they need to do. They didn't need to do a lot, and they didn't do a lot. They just knew, hand the ball off, don't turn it over. They did turn it over. It led to the only field goal that Furman had, uh, the only points that Furman had, I should say. And then I don't even think they got a first down on that. It was a three and out and kick a field goal and seven to three at that time. But it it just felt insurmountable once the second the second score came in, made it 13-3. I mean, 10 Ten three, you're like, okay, maybe Furman, puncher's chance, he hit something. Once the field goal went in, it almost felt like watching it, just like you probably felt reading it. That same thing. It was like you could just tell that it was over with. But Furman has to do something. The, the last three quarters only have 34 minutes of time of possession is, is atrocious. They're going to have to figure it out quickly. Jace Wilson, they tried to roll him out a little bit. I don't know. Chattanooga did some good scouting. The other thing is Chattanooga's front three is dominant as anybody, I would say, in all of FCS. Again, just watching them manhandle uh, every offensive line. So, chat's going to be a a tough out. People are just going to have to try to, you know, I think if people can get 24 points on chat, they've got a shot of beating Chattanooga. But if you keep it low scoring, grind it out, then I think nobody has a shot. And for Furman, you know, their sort of dream run of getting back into this thing is, is over with. And Two tough losses they took back-to-back weeks. Two different ways, but two tough losses to ETSU and Chattanooga. Puts a fork in them, and Chattanooga continues to roll and finally got in the top 25. The team that finds themselves alone at the top of the conference after six weekends of league play, the Mercer Bears. And it wasn't easy early. The Citadel scores first and leads 7-0 through the first 25 minutes, but a disastrous sequence at the end of the second quarter. Flip the momentum and the score line. The Bulldogs punt with 4.30 left in the second quarter, and Devron Harper returns it 52 yards to the Bulldogs' seven. Didn't take long for Fred Davis to punch it in, as you would imagine. Then the Bulldogs on the next possession, a third and three at their own 30, and Kevin Joku fumbles, Mercer recovers, another short field, and with Harper gets a 24-yard completion down to the Citadel one. Davis with 42 seconds left to go in the half, hammers it another, and that, again, it may not be a popular opinion about when the game really ended, but that to me was when the game ended. Now, I know it was only 14-7 at the break. Mercer scored 20 in the second half to win 34-7. I know Citadel still had a chance throughout most of the second half. It was 17-7 with six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Mercer got a field goal, a pick six, and a 72-yard touchdown run from Tayshawn Ship that put the game away, literally. But it seems like one of the differences with the Citadel team is that when they have a sequence like the one that they did at the end of the first half, they're just not able to overcome it. And 
whether it's a metal thing or if they're just outskilled, they don't have the talent, the players to be able to overcome it. It seems like the Bulldogs have to play perfect to even be in a game. And obviously that hasn't happened a lot in 2021, but we're not even talking about winning a game. It seems like they have to play perfect to even be in a contest. And it seemed like those first, you know, 25 or so minutes of the game they did, but when it came down to the last five minutes of the half, and then obviously you go into the locker room and you say, wow, we were the better team for, you know, what, 97% of the plays and, you know, 85% of the entire first half. And we're sitting here down 14-7 to against the league leader. To me, all hope is gone. The turnovers are not being able to overcome those. That's the big thing. You remember when we played Citadel, gave you the stats on the plus minuses and when they've been getting bad. And, again, they're minus two. They had three turnovers. They did force a turnover, but they're minus three again. And it's when those turnovers are happening is what's killing. It's never going to have a turnover, but just those particular game times. Like to flip a game in the last minute of the first half, the way that Mercer was able because, you know, Citadel dominated the first quarter. Felt like they were dominating midway through the second. Mercer finally got a drive going, got some points up, and then you immediately give them the ball back, and they punch it right back in. And it just has to be, you know, a gut punch. And so Citadel's formula, they, they can't turn it over. That offense and the whole thing that that has brought, you know, why they run that is, you know, and the interception late, it was already over. They're trying to make a play. They're down 13 with five minutes to go, and, you know, to me, that's going to happen. But it was the fumble early in the first half it did. And Citadel, that's, that's been one of the reasons why they've not been very good. Turnovers, they can't hold on to it. And then timing of the turnovers, whether it's in the red zone, as we saw a couple weeks ago against Furman. You know, it, it was penalties and that. But in this game particularly, just having that momentum sucked right out. And then it kind of felt like, oh, here we go again. That's what it kind of felt like for the Citadel that, they're not good enough to overcome that stuff right now because they've had bad results when that's happened. So for the Mercer Bears, uh, tight early, and then uh, they do what good teams do. They put a bad team away. And finally, I know this is the moment you've been waiting for, a chance to hammer off. But before you do, I'm going to come to their defense a little bit. Josh Conklin said post game after his team scored 21 points, 14 of which were after his team was down 41-7 to to Western Carolina that his team is decimated in a lot of positions and that they lost Devin Matthews, one of their wide receivers, for the season Saturday with a break in his lower leg. And maybe I'm not so much defending them as just not wanting to crush them because, to me, it's kind of sad at this point, quite honestly. It's now 10 in a row they've lost to the Southern Conference, longest streak in program history. They gave up 34 first-half points. There may be, I don't know this, but guessing over the decade of, really dominance that Wofford had in the Southern Conference. I bet there's been full seasons where they haven't given up 34 in a game. They gave up 34 first half points to Western Carolina. Raphael Williams set a Western Carolina record for catches in a game, 16 of them, along with 177 yards and two touchdowns. Rogan Wells was back as the starter, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I really understand what Carlos Davis has to do to stay on the field for Western. Throws for over 400 yards. Apparently it doesn't matter who's on the field. Well, that's fair. Win Southern Conference Player of the Week throws for 400 yards, but Wells, the starter, Davis only coming out after the game was decided. Rowan Bell loves his guy. We know that. And that belief paid off. 309 yards and four scores. Clearly there's a couple of guys that can chuck it around the field for Kerwin Bell. 41-21 the final. Wofford 0-6 in the league. They've lost three of their last four league games by 20 or more. The only positive about SOCOM play for the Terriers is that they get to be the first ones to end it. They're done on the 13th, and they have North Carolina on the 20th. That's not a positive, though, for them because that game is going to be extremely ugly, even though North Carolina maybe not the team that some 
people thought they could be for him. Well, and this was another one of those, like, a play changed the game. So you're sitting there, and Western goes up. Yes, it's 27-7. That doesn't sound great. There's a minute and a half to go, 30 seconds to go in the half. Western gets an interception, and in the last 30 seconds, get a touchdown. And it goes 34-7. So not that 27-7 was great, but certainly in case you, you weren't sure what was going to happen, then you get 34-7, and then that will do it. And Wofford actually was going to get the ball second half. So they were driving. I thought maybe they'd get a field goal. Let's say it's 27-10. Certainly you didn't think they were going to win the game. Though. That wasn't a game-changing play in terms of the final result. I'm just saying for momentum purposes. <laughs> okay. You went Mr. Positive. Okay. You went positive. I'm just trying to be positive for no. the kids. For uh, the kids. Yes, for the kids. For the sure, kids. That's fair. So, but, but I'm not going to be positive there. That play was one in a sea of terribleness for a while. So, I mean, let's be honest. You sit there, you get a field goal, 27-10, you get the ball, you go. It, the same theory that I gave against VMI was VMI, when they were down 38-17, had the ball with a couple minutes to go in the half, and they were getting the ball in the second half. They got the quick field goal. They got second half. They scored a 10 points. Now, clearly, VMI is better than Wofford. But there is something to the momentum thing where Citadel and Wofford both pack it in. It's over at that point where VMI was able to score, get the ball back. Because all those situations, Citadel got the ball to start the second half, too. And if they would have just not fumbled, they would have had the ball 7-7 go. Wofford would have had the ball. Anyways, <laughs> transitioning things. Before the half. You have to go a few more steps than a usual scenario in this one is all I'm saying. Just a few more things. If the U-Haul is not at Josh Conklin's house by the fan base, I don't, I don't want to. And, and, listen to you. So negative. I just want to state the, the game of the century, I think, is going to be the 13th of November. And, no, it's not because VMI and Furman play. It's not because Chattanooga and Mercer's playing. It's not because the Bucks are at Western no, Carolina. It no, is Wofford it. and no, the Citadel. No, no. Who... Doesn't win that game, may not be allowed to get back on a bus. That's what you wanted out of me. That's what you wanted me to say. You're over here trying to bait me. There. Said it. Go. I feel bad for the kids. I'm the humanitarian on this show. We okay. obviously know that. I've, I, I, I feel bad for the kids, too, which is why I want them to have a new coach. <laughs> I'm so glad that we don't have to have Josh Conklin on the rest of the season on the pregame show. <laughs> or any other season, probably. Oh, man, I walked right into that one, didn't I? That is the Southern Conference. So, again, four teams, quote-unquote, tied at the top. Mercer is off this week. They play the 13th and the 20th. Whoever wins, the They're going to climb into standings no matter what because somebody has to lose in ETSU-VMI. ETSU and VMI, one of the teams is going to tie Mercer at the top. And Chattanooga, who do they have this week? Wofford. Wofford. So there's going to be a three-way tie at the top of the Southern That's, Conference okay. at 5-1. and one. There you go. All right. That's segment one. Do we want to put breaks back into the show and just like, or no? I'll, really do, I'll, do, I'll okay. do it Thursday. But Amy we'll, Jenkins! We'll do it Thursday. What is up? season is certainly flying by. Football is going into their stretch run. Men's soccer going into the postseason. Women's soccer has already wrapped up their season. And ETSU Volleyball is having quite the season under head coach Benavia Jenkins. Third year of Coach Jenkins here in Johnson City. And we're here to give a really total retrospective of those three years with Coach. Thanks for joining us, Coach. Really appreciate you being on with us, I think, for the first time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Apologies that we didn't have you sooner. Don't, don't hate me. Uh, before we talk about this year, I was at your first official practice as a head coach. And since then, I mean, gosh, a ton has happened with your program in the world, you know, enough for a lifetime, really, between mm -hmm. uh, those two aspects of your life. We'll detail some of that in a few seconds. But when you look back on the first couple of years and the couple of years since that first practice, how do you describe them? Um, I remember when I first walked into practice and um, into our preseason and I'm looking at the team and I would never guess that we would have been um, as good as we were that first year. I knew we had some special talent on the on the court, but I wasn't expecting such a young team. And uh, my first year as a head coach, how would you know I respond and um, never been in certain situations before. Um, but we had a great season, um, had some really good players. I remember Kayla Massey was just a, such a great leader on and off the court for us, and I, I give her a lot of credit to our successful season. So I, I look back on that, and, of course, you know, you want to win. Uh, it's such a close, uh, <laughs> a close journey um, at right at the finals with Sanford and just losing that, but I, I'm so happy for – what we were able to pull out of our players, and I know that ETSU volleyball um, is going to be great in the future. So when you look at that first year, you went 25-6, and six, second highest winning percentage in program history. As a first-year head coach, I mean, what a way to step into a job, and you really only had a few years of collegiate coaching experience <laughs> when you took this job, so especially looking at where you had come from, a long and successful playing career, and then transitioning pretty quickly into a head coaching job if you look at others around the country and um, how long it takes some people to get an opportunity like that. You got one pretty early. You made the most of it. How did you do so well, so quickly, so seamlessly? <laughs> That's a great question. I have to give a lot of credit to my mentors. Um, even when I, you know, once I retired from professional volleyball and I came back and uh, worked with Nick Sharonis, um, he I learned so much from him. Even though we're at a junior college at Santa Fe, um, I just learned so much from him. He coached me um, at University of Florida. So just being around him, watching him coach, um, then taking a job with Joseph Foreman over at Coastal Carolina, Coastal Carolina, such a winning um, program, and I give him a lot of credit as well because he just does such a tremendous job with his program over there. So just learning um, a lot from them, um, a lot of the X and O's of the game, um, you know, how you want to build a culture, things that I, I took that was good and things that I, I left behind, and I was like, that's not what I want to do with my program once I become a head coach. I've always wanted to be one. Uh, when I got to South Florida, we had a, a good, a pretty good season there uh, my first two years. And, and after that, I just started noticing that, you know, the questions that I was asking, um, my movement around the program, I, I knew I was ready. So when I got this opportunity, I, I jumped right on it. Now, you lose a couple of players from that first-year team. You mentioned Kayla Massey, Maria Popovich, another one. Big losses, no doubt. But if I'm Benavia Jenkins, I'm looking at the roster, I'm bringing it back, I'm saying – it's on. We're only going up from here. And then a bunch of stuff in the world happens, right? Yeah. COVID, police brutality, George yes. Floyd, campuses cleared out all across the country because of the coronavirus in the fall of 2020. Then your season is moved to the spring. And then if all that wasn't enough around you, more personally for your program, you lose Olivia Cunningham and Lauren Hatch to knee injuries. What was March of 2020 to March of 2021 like for 
Oh, man. <laughs> I, I look back on everything, and um, I have to remind myself daily that trouble don't last always. And even though with everything we were going through, police brutality, losing um, my top player, starting a – basically almost starting a whole new new um, – new program um and and just trying to find out who I was as a coach who I was as a as a person and in such a a tough moment dealing with COVID and you know we've been shut down and practices and you know you don't expect for any of this to happen um you know but my faith is 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 really high in, in in God and and I just have to continue to remind myself and remind the team that you know, it, we're going to get through this together. Uh, regardless, I just had to become something a little different for my team now. Um, and I've learned a lot along this journey, and my team has learned a lot as well. We've grown together. We've cried together. Um, we laughed together. And, and I think that's what makes us such a, you know, strong and unique team this year is because in these moments we became very vulnerable with each other and very transparent Um and so, <laughs> I mean, things happen in a life that, you know, where it's not expected or the things that you think should be, you know, we should be passed by now with uh, racial injustice. But here we are. Um, and, and, and what do we do with, with, with that? So I, I give a lot of credit to my team and, and a lot of credit to my, my coaching staff because without them, I feel that it would be tough for me to carry on this job because it was, it was really tough for me in those moments. But I had such a strong team and a strong uh, coaching staff who believed. And, and like I said in the beginning, like trouble don't last always, and, and we have to continue to move forward. So let's pick it up. In March of 2021, you rally your team to three wins in the final three weekends into spring, come back in the fall, and as optimistic as I was for the 2020 season, I'm not going to lie to you, Coach, and you know this is coming from someone that believes in you as much as anybody in the Southeast United States. I thought that this was going to be kind of a down year, a throwaway season. No Lauren, no Olivia, a couple of beach volleyball transfers coming in. I'm like, I'm not quite sure what Coach's approach here is. And you look now, and the team is 7-5, and five, tied for third in the Southern Conference. If you would have looked at this team in August like we were, and I had told you that 7-5 and five, tied for third, outside Shadow League Championship, probably not going to get there with just how little time is left, but looking at a top-four seed, if I would have told you these things were happening a couple of months later, would you have looked at me and said, get out of my office, there's no way, or were you of an optimistic belief that you were going to be able to pull this thing together? And were there thoughts in your mind that this may be a down year yourself? Like, were you trying to be honest with yourself as well and set realistic expectations, or were you just, sky's the limit, let's go get it? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I, You know, in August, I would have told you uh, I felt the same. <laughs> this is going to be a very tough season for us, um, and, and it still is. You know, we have some, some tough competition coming up this weekend. But, you know, I saw some really good things in preseason, um, in those preseason tournaments, um, I just and, and I was like, man, if we can continue this, you know, even if we have those on and off matches, but if we can have more on than off, I think we'll be okay in the SoCon. Um, so right now, I mean, Hosanna Vasquez, um, she, you know, this is very new for her as, you know, 
getting it back into the the indoor. But she's she's putting up some pretty good numbers for us. Um, she's been a very consistent player as we need her to be, and. Um, you know, with Sarah Esposito, she's, she's you know, starting to find her way. We had a talk the other day, and I said, hey, this is your senior year. So you have to give all that you have because you, you can't get any of this back. This is this is it. So <laughs> it's, it's to the real world after this, and I think she's starting to realize, like, man, I have, you know, there's four four matches in the in the conference left, and then, you know, the SOCON tournament, I need to be more of a leader right now. So – I mean, I'm trying to be as much um, optimistic as I can for this program, for our girls, uh, because in practice we see a lot of good things. Uh, we just have to get out of that mental game once we get in those pressure moments and matches. But, I mean, I'm proud of these girls. I wouldn't expect for us to be third right now. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm proud and I'm, I'm glad that we're not like a – Eighth and ninth. <laughs> <laughs> well, is an interesting one because not only is she coming from obviously a very successful beach program, if you're not familiar with the beach volleyball scene, yeah. uh, it's an incredible one at USC. I think they were national champions last year, like yeah. runner-up national champions mm-hmm. two years prior to that. I know you're familiar, but for the listen- listeners that may not keep up with beach volleyball uh, as much as you or I do, but Hosanna really didn't play a ton when she was out there either, and she had some very brief experiences in the indoor game. Uh, I think it was Long Beach City College yes. um, in her first year, but but that was a full four seasons ago, and then doesn't play a lot in beach. So not only was it that she was coming from a totally different game in the beach game, but she also really hadn't been that experienced in terms of, all right, here's some high-pressure, high-stakes volleyball. You're out there for it. How are you going to respond Obviously, she's found a way to play a major role successfully on this team. And to be able to cover so much ground as she has from her figuring out she's going to come here, you bringing her to ETSU, to now this point where she's leaving at ETSU and kills for set and is playing a huge role in serve-receive and serve as well and really touching the ball more than really anyone else, aside from maybe a Caroline Dykes who touches at every single point, Mm -hmm. um, on your team. Seeing that maturation and that growth, over such a short period of time, how have you found a way to aid her and help her? And have you seen anything quite like it? Because it seems not unprecedented, obviously. There's tons of players that I'm sure have done it across the country, but seeing it up close, I'm sure, has been uh, amazing. Yeah, uh, this is actually my first time ever, you know, working with a a beach player that transitioned into indoor. Um, Hosanna is a special case for us. Um, She come here with you know, the the broken confidence. Um, and so really having to build her up that, hey, let's just give it one more try. Um, and that was pretty much our conversation on the phone. Give it one more try, end with a good note. Um, volleyball is such a, a fun sport. I know your experience may not have been the best as, you know, you want it to be. and But here, I'll make sure I take care of you as a, as a player, as a person, um, to make sure that, you know, once you walk away from ETSU, you you will feel more happy inside and completed inside. And I and and you know, just talking with Hosanna just the other day, she goes, Coach, I said, Hey, do you want to do you know a COVID year with us? <laughs> and she says, You know, Coach, to be honest, I'm I'm happy that I'm finishing the way that I'm going to finish. And that just really melted my heart because I know that she is you know work really hard to get where she is now. And to walk away from something and feel like you're, you completed a, a task, I'm okay with that. 
four matches left in the regular season. What do you hope to accomplish between now and the start of the postseason? And once you're there, can this team do what some would have thought to be, including it sounds like you and me, maybe unthinkable just a couple of months ago, win the postseason title, go to the NCAAs? That was really the one thing that you didn't accomplish in your first year here. Pretty much everything else, you checked off a bunch of boxes, but Sanford got you in the regular season championship match and the postseason championship match. They're having a down year. You're still right around the top of the Southern Conference. So are you aiming for that? Is that on the list? Are you going to put that on the board in front of your players when you go into that postseason? <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, the sky is the limit for our team, and we, we talk about that. I, that was one of their goals for um, in the beginning of the season is, is what we're going to do in the postseason. Um, we, we get through this season uh, with regular conference. We fight hard. We finish at a, you know, hopefully top top five in the conference. That was our goal, top five in the conference. And then now we know the teams. We can really prepare for them and be ready to um, have an upset in the SOCON tournament. So I think these, you know, our players are ready for it. Um, we know that we're going to have some tough matches coming up. These next four matches, I mean, it looks like everyone is <laughs> doing well. Um, you know, even though Sanford is down right now, they've, I think they just had a 2-0 um, a weekend as well. Uh, Mercer has been solid the entire season. Chad has been knocking off some teams as well at this um, at the end. And then Wofford, um, Wofford, I think, is similar to us, just a high-energy team. But, you know, just what day you catch them on. <laughs> so I think this, is, this should be an interesting um, stretch of the season and for us to try to win as much as we can now and, and be seated well in the SOCON tournament. But, you know, I think right now is what I'm seeing here is, is who's, who's going to show up at the SOCON tournament, who's going to come in with the less errors. Um, and that's kind of the game right now. If, you, if you're if a low-error team, you can win. Hey, Coach Bernavia Jenkins, third season here with ETSU. Buccaneers play their final home match of the season, November 12th, senior night, following Friday the 19th. SOCON quarterfinal postseason begins. Coach and the Buccaneers will be all set for that after their final four regular season matches. Good luck down the stretch. Thank you. Hi, Coach Benavia Jenkins on Sanderson and the Sidekick. Back with Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout on Buccaneer Sports Network. Steve Forbes era began 6 a.m. We're going to talk about that one. 6 a.m. Well, feel free to jump right in. That's the, the, when they were still doing the 24 hours of basketball. Which I don't know why. They, okay, well, that's not true. I know why they did away with it. But I hate that they did away with it. I love that. We loved it, too. We got the 6 a.m. game, Freedom Hall. That's the only time I've ever left the game, and it was daylight at Freedom Hall. I don't ever remember even in the crazy I hours. four o'clock games, you probably left it. It was daylight at some point. Four o'clock games. No, uh, no, no. It gets dark at six thirty, something like that. So, but that being said, you know, you get there at two a.m. or whatever it was to try to help people set up. Then at six a.m., people were rolling in between six and eight, and then ETSU ends up beating Green Bay, and then uh, then you walk outside and sunlight's just hammering you, and everybody's like, "All right, we're going to the office." So we go to the office about ten minutes, and 
Everybody's like, all right, time to go. We're and then we go ahead. Yeah, so all right, you can go. I just want to make sure we've got that in there. Oh, I'm glad we did because, again, that's People a, love that. That is a tradition. Somewhere ETSU Hoop Nation is going to make a tweet about it. That's all I'm saying. Did they ever justify why they got rid of it? Was it just cost? Was it the fact that I, Midnight Madness technically isn't a thing anymore? I think people – it it had been around for a while, and the people that are willing to do a game at those hours went by the wayside. Really? That's what I'm guessing. Hmm. That's a shame. Because there were, like, 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. tips, right? Yes, but generally those were, like... Hawaii. Right, Hawaii or Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska, I think, played one of them. Which, again, I mean, by all means, right, you get your chance on national TV. And Hawaii and Anchorage and those... Typically not basketball powers, so you're not going to be on national TV. I mean, that that was many years ago when I was still in high school that ETSU got ESPN2 to do a game. And when they played at Charlotte at the 49ers, at the old gold mine, but they had to tip at midnight Eastern, but it was so they could get on ESPN too. So I didn't get to see the end of the game, but it was one of those where like you just sacrifice. So I you know it. you're on ESPN on, on one of the big boys or ESPN two whatever it was, and we did six a.m. and ETSU beat Green Bay. For right, the kids' ahead. sake, I guess I'm happy to have to do that because I have played six a.m. games myself because the old Metrodome, now obviously gone when the roof broke through because of the snow, and then it was later imploded U.S. Bank Stadiums there now where we just saw the Vikings somehow lose a game to the Dallas Cowboys 20-16 without Dak Prescott. Anyway, I digress. We had some games at 6 a.m. because they scheduled 24 hours around the clock at the Metrodome for college baseball for the smaller schools. And it was not fun to be up, as you know from having to broadcast. To play it was not either, to be up at like 1, 2 in the morning. Yeah, to broadcast is different than to play. Well, I'm no standing around, so it's right. going to be Still. pretty much the same. Okay. Uh, All right. This is a special version of this segment, Buff Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout for a lot of reasons, but first and foremost, as you said, first year of Steve Forbes. We obviously know he went on to bring this program to one of the greatest stretches in ETSU history. Is that fair to say? Yep. Greatest stretches in ETSU history. I'm curious for those of us that weren't as clued into the feeling around Johnson City and ETSU at the time, what did people think of this hire? I want you to go back even before – the 24 hours of basketball before the Green Bay game. Was it more skepticism? And honestly, I'm trying to think of what the skepticism would have been about. I don't really know outside of the fact that, you know, Steve Forbes is from Iowa. It's one of the worst places on earth, so I understand that part of it. But <laughs> the is it shot. more prevalent uh, that there was optimism everywhere because of the big names and big programs he had been around, had a bit of head coaching experience, tremendously connected in the basketball world as well. Obviously, we know that if you weren't optimistic about it, you should have been. But at the time, what was the feeling? Well, I, th- I think there's a couple things. One, the – only pause, right? He was coming off the show cause where he was at Tennessee, which a lot of people hear. But people loved Pearl when he was at Tennessee. He took Tennessee to great heights. Coach was on that. We know there's plenty of ETSU, Tennessee dual fans or whatever you want to call them. And so kind of like Randy Sanders, right? There was a little bit of a buzz because it's somebody that a lot of times you get these hires, you just don't know them. Like if you look around the league, unless you're really tied in, to college basketball, a lot of the hires you, you just don't know because, you know, it's an assistant somewhere, it's that. I mean, you're just, you know, we deal with different coaches, different errands, so we can run into certain people. We certainly are a little more knowledgeable on that regard of running into people. But I think the normal fan don't know assistant coaches. But in this case, they did. They, they knew of Steve Forbes. He was on Bruce Pearl. Maybe they only knew because of what happened with the, the barbecue or whatever it was. The other thing is he won the press conference on accident. When Murray Bartow left the last couple of years, he had gotten into um, really him and Scott Wagers got into some zone defense and got away from the pack line man defense. And Coach Forbes just randomly said, "Hey, you know, you know, we're going to play, you know, 
Grady Grimey together, blah, 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 his little speech. And, and he says, you know, and I, I believe, you know, you got to play tough man-to-man defense. And then the place erupted in the press conference. <laughs> and he was just looking at me afterwards because I had to walk him. Uh, I think Mike White was lining up some interviews. I had to walk him somewhere. And he goes, what was that about? I said, well, yeah, Murray. He goes, oh, my gosh, i got to call Murray. I didn't even know that. Like, that was not even, oh. a, that was not even a thing. Like, so, he trolled him but didn't know. Right, he yeah, he had no idea that that's, that's what it was. So, then I think the skepticism was he brought in a bunch of guys, right? And that ended up being his M.O. Every year was turning over a roster. and So, I brought it in. And, you know, new coach generally they do turn over a roster. So, I don't think that they thought, well, it's going to take a while, you know, to gel and to do. And so, I, I think the program was ready for a change. The fan base was ready for a change. And then I think Coach Forbes came in, and it just happened to be the perfect right fit. And people were on board, I think, because Tennessee ties. His personality won the press conference, which is always big, right? He didn't mean to win the press conference. That was not his intention with that line to win that press conference. He also gave the great line of somebody asked him about his guys, and he stopped the – I don't remember if it was Avento or whoever asked it, and he stopped them in their track and said, they're all my guys. When I'm the head coach, every one of the players are my guys. Like, I'm going to fight for them, whether I recruited them or not, because they could have left. They stayed with me. And, obviously, you look at some of the guys that did stay that he has a relationship with. A.J. Merriweather is probably a, a good one to, to talk about. But he was able to, you know, transition the guys that were able to stay around with Ike Banks and A.J. Merriweather and Petey McClain and then to bring along, you know, his guys – um, and then certainly, I think Desante Bradford was a, was a freshman. Barksley was, I think, he was a sophomore on this team. So, I, I think it was a, a little bit of a perfect storm. And his personality fits the area, if nothing else. Yeah, people weren't on board to begin with. A couple of hundred plus point nights for ETSU to start his tenure. Not a bad way to get them on board. And the road trip that just looked vicious after those opening victories against what was it? Did you say Averett? Everett? Averett, whatever, and then the Green Bay win. Averett? It was Averett. Averett. So yep. Averett and Green Bay, you get the 100-plus-point uh, the nights. Then you have Villanova, Georgia Tech, Charleston Southern. That was also the year Villanova won their first championship. So I figure you'd come out of there with one victory and be happy from it, and the Bucks would get one, but not against the team that you'd think. That's a G-Line win. Win with four. Win for the win. Head of the keys. Good! Point nine! Jalen Gwynn pumps his chest and why not? What else hasn't he done? Oh, baby! I'm surprised we're on air. I about ripped the mixer out. <laughs> that's the best part of the call to me. And that's Jalen Gwynn from deep against Georgia Tech. Bucks' only victory over the Yellow Jackets outside of an 86-76 win in the 1978-79 season. And then the final road game in that span, ETSU gets a G-Long win layup with 22 seconds left to get within one against Charleston Southern. And then missed free throws from A.J. Merriweather with four seconds left. And Bucky loses to Bucky, 77-76. to 76. How in the world did that road swing pan out that way? I don't understand. Uh, it was a, it, The difference in two highs, right? You come up one, we knew Villanova was, they were preseason ranked one of the highest they've ever been. Yeah. And in seeing them in person, we're like, yeah, they're pretty good. And I think Coach's comment right after the game was, yeah, I think that team can win a championship. And, of course, Steve Forbes wouldn't let you forget about the fact that he told you that they were going to win a championship when they did. Then you go to Georgia Tech, and honestly, you get a play that they had uh, Jason Shea designed, 
basically for Chris Lofton at Tennessee that had won them a game. They ran the same play, and Gelon Gwynn hit the shot, able to win the game. And then you're right. You're thinking, okay, get that one. Now you're going to get Charles Southern, and boom, you take that one with the missed free throws, and that's going to be a theme here in a second. Then you got a Wilmington and Kevin Keats, who uh, uh, ended up being at NC State, and ETSU ended up being in the pod with them the, the next year when we get in there at NCAA tournament in Orlando. And then Tennessee Tech, you lose that one in which you take nine free throws, but the opposing team takes 38 free throws. And so then all of a sudden, again, if you take – Loss, 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 and you're like, woo, you got Milligan. You're like, okay. And then UNCA, another loss, and then you start to kind of start to slowly turn the ship on a 24-win team. So this segment also special because the year didn't have just one buzzer beater. It's not only Forbes' first year, but not just one buzzer beater. The Bucks were making noise in the league early on. They beat Western Carolina the day after New Year's, their second victory in a span of six straight. This was number four in that run. And now they'll try to set the play. Wilson sets the screen. Now they're trying to get it to Ike Banks. Petey McLean with four. McLean looking for Cromer. Open look in the lead to beat the Hornyman. 6.1. He knocks down to three. TJ Cromer against UNCG breaks an 83-83 deadlock. This is the only buzzer beater from TJ in the count up to the season. A transfer in from Columbia State Community College. We talked last week about Jalen Riley. By the way, it was cool to see him get word of that buzzer beater and kind of chime in and say, wow, four years around ETSU, that would have been so special. And people were saying, oh, records would have fallen. It was it was awesome. I think it was ETSU Hoops Nation who ended up looping him in. I could not find his uh, Twitter, so I wasn't able to take myself. And also it was a five-segment show, so it was sure, I understand. in terms of not being able to uh, at mention him in there because all the characters and such. But we talked about Jalen Riley and him transferring in and what he was able to do spending just two years at ETSU. Well, Cromer was an even more prolific scorer than Riley. 150 more points in his two years, 22nd on the all-time scoring list. And I did some digging, bless you. And it appears to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and by all means do. You have before, you will again. But it looks like to me he's number one on the all-time ETSU scoring list of players that spent just two years with the Bucks. And let me tell you the only reservations I have with it because – this is what I look for. The record book, right? i got to go to the record book because I haven't been around for a million years like you. Tom Chilton, Skeeter Swift, and Mike Kretzer, it appeared, only played two years. At least that's in the scoring list. But then you go to their actual year-by-year bios, and you see that they spent three years at ETSU. They actually spent four. Four, the, okay. The, the rule was freshmen weren't allowed to play back then. Yeah. You had to play freshman ball. You were not allowed to compete. That was the running joke while Lou Alcindor, his numbers at UCLA weren't what they were because his freshman team would beat the crap out of the actual national championship UCLA teams because he wasn't allowed to compete. So those guys played three years just because of the rule that was put back in place then. So correct me if I'm wrong then, since this would be right in terms of those three, but T.J. Cromer, number one all-time on the two-year scoring list that I just made up. Uh, and he was also a bucket. Correct me if I'm wrong on that too. I he, mean, was, this man he, could was, score. he was a bucket. The second on that list should be Kevin Tiggs. Should be, I think he bested Tiggs by just a couple of points. Tiggs was probably an all-around better player, because he, but they played different positions, and Tiggs was a rebounding machine. Uh, Cromer, by far the best shooter um, of the group, and could just put up buckets after buckets. How nine, much, points nine points. Nine points. So, 
uh, both played on NCAA tournament teams. Um, and the difference, uh, you know, with Tiggs, he played with Pegram and Mike Smith. And so he's sharing the rock with those guys and putting up those numbers. So, but, you know, it's tough to argue um, Cromer. And really, you could – there's probably Mike Smith and those guys would argue Tiggs is maybe a better two-year player. But it would be hard-pressed. Um, those would be the one and two without even question. And then you could get into, you know, some other two-year guys. I know Rodney English was a two-year guy. And barely, I think he just got to a thousand, or maybe he was the rare nine nine nine. I think he had nine hundred ninety nine, something unfortunate for Rodney English in there. So he was a two year guy on a team that had seven thousand point scores and a two thousand point score. So um, you know you could argue all of those, but for sure, what T.J. Cromer meant to the team when he got there to help him go and to have a running mate with him and Gilon Gwynn certainly gave the one two punch that gave him the credible threat. This year gets even more special because there is a third buzzer beater, one of two years that have three buzzer beaters on our account up to the season, the only year to have two buzzer beaters from the same man. Eight seconds to go, seven seconds. Win with the left side with five. Down, forces a shot with three, and it goes with two-pointing. Jalen Gwynn does it again. That was 12 days after the buzzer beater from Cromer against UNCG. Is that Mercer? What was that? Okay, <laughs> it threw me off. Uh, so I was trying to remember the Greens, because there were a lot of tight games that were won, and I couldn't remember if UNCG or Mercer was the buzzer beater. One of those games, both, against Mercer. Bo- both were um, situations where come from behind. The Since that was the buzzer beater, then I know UNCG, ETSU would have been down 9 or 10 going to the last media timeout in Fleming Gym, and then Deuce Bellow had a big dunk, put, put the Bucks up 3 and held on to the win. The Mercer one, then Bradford would have hit a shot, I, I think, to get him to overtime. And then Gilon, who had a monster first half game, if I remember correctly on that, I think he may have – did he finish with 30 in that one? I'm trying to pull up the box score. I think he had 30 in that. Oh, no, he just had 20. Uh, 18. He had 18 in that. So, uh, points were at a premium. That was the next year uh, that somebody had 30. But that being said, Gilon Gwynn had a knack for – the shot, he just, I don't know, there's guys, and I know I, I was giving Jalen Riley a hard time about not having a conscience about shooting, but Gwen in big spots. I mean, he just came through in the clutch all the time, whether it was a free throw, whether he needed a three, whether he needed a defensive play. He's probably underrated for what he could do defensively. So, that being said, I, it was a fun year to call and certainly got more entertaining as the Southern Conference came around. So that season, really a pretty strong indicator that the Bucks were going to be a force under Steve Forbes. ETSU wins eight of their nine games in February, finished 14-4 and four in the league, second behind Chattanooga. The Mocs got them in the championship game, though, when the two met in the postseason, and Forbes and company would go on to the greatest defunct and irrelevant tournament, even when it was still funked in the college basketball postseason. It was postseason. great. The you Vegas shut up. 16 Losing to Oakland in the second round. I know you only like it because you got a free trip to Vegas. I did get a free trip to Vegas. Uh, it was entertaining. Man- Mandalay Bay, it's the the one time that there's eight people in the stands and the one guy yelling behind me not to, for us not to dribble out the clock because he had the over. <laughs> and uh, since it was legal, I had people like, oh, my gosh, people gambling game. I'm like, we're in a casino, folks. I don't. Uh, but the Vegas 16 that went to eight, but then they claimed since it was 2016, that was really the – the go-to move. I thought it was a genius idea. I, I wish they would 
Uh, they would go back to that. Uh, but of course it, they do. It was a championship game uh, against Chattanooga. Bucks got hosed again in the free throw column, uh, 6-13 ETSU. 26-31 for Chattanooga. Uh, ETSU shot zero free throws on jump shots, while Chattanooga took 14 free throws on jump shots. You like my memory on this? I can that tell you this impressive. right off the bat. I believe it's uh, Ray Natilli. Ray Natilli uh, did not call a foul on Cromer, in which he yelled, in which Dakota Hamilton, our photographer, had a shot of the flat-out arm being pushed back from the arm on the foul. And then that led to a Cromer technical, which led to a Steve Forbes technical, which somehow led to ETSU still getting back into it and tying the game up and then uh, end up losing uh, to the Chattanooga Bucks, uh, as we know. So, going against Georgia Tech, you had Cromer against UNCG, and then Mercer, it was Gwyn again, and just had a couple of those other, um, I guess, quote-unquote buzzer beaters that you were talking about. Uh, firstly, it was a Gwyn layup to get to overtime against Mercer, and then you had the winner uh, in overtime the first time that those two teams played in the 2015-16 season. Uh, you then mentioned the UNCG game on the road. That was a dunk after the Bucks were already up one from Deuce Bell. Right, they were down nine or ten in the last three or four minutes ago. That's when Steve Forbes cursed on air for the first time. First of many times. <laughs> when I asked him what he said to the team in the last media timeout, and he said it was time to do something or get off the pot, and I'll let you fill yes, in the blanks. I, and, I know uh, that one. And so he yeah. uh, he did that. But that was, uh, that was an incredible one because UNCG had just started to turn a corner on wanting to be the team. And then uh, uh, ETSU had knocked them off twice where we heard the Cromer first one, then the Bucks bid come from behind on that one. I'm just happy that you haven't been able to find any buzzer beaters that I have missed because that Mercer game on the road as well uh, was 77-74. ETSU, the one later in the season, the one that didn't have the buzzer beater, and that was a pair of Geelong Gwynn free throws uh, late on, but the Bucks were already up one in that one as well. So I'm very happy with myself. Can I pat myself on the back for mm-hmm. how well mm-hmm. I'm doing here? Okay, thank you. Uh, Geelong Gwynn, before we go, um, little runner on the left side of the paint with that right hand. Uh, I often think of Gwen as an ETSU legend. When we're talking about that uh, game against Mercer again with Gwen hitting that shot to get the win, 65-63. to 63. I think of him as a legend because people talk about him so much. It makes me think he was here for at least a few years. But looking at his career, he really just did pack a ton of accomplishments into the one season that he was at ETSU. Came over from Cincinnati after being a starter there, got injured, transferred to ETSU. Um, an absolute dead-eye shooter, right? Like 94 threes that season, average 19 points per game, and the only buck with multiple buzzer beaters in a year at least on this segment and how it defines buzzer beaters as far as the archives go back for our radio archives and anything we could find on the Internet as well. But it being just one season, I mean, incredible the amount he was able to stuff into that one campaign. Can I give you one more Jalon story? Sure. Playing Sanford, and it was um – guess it was a two-point game late in the game, and ETSU had gotten up 10, gave up the lead. It was tied. It went back and forth, and it was 70 – I think – what is it? i got to find it here. It was 70 – 70 77-77, and then he hits a runner with seven seconds to go when coach wanted to not take a shot. And Jalen forces up a shot seven seconds ago. It goes down, and the Bucks get stopped and hit free throws and win by four. But it was one of those where it was like you could see, you know, and again, there's not many people in the Pete Hanna Arena Center, whatever that kind of thing's called. So you could hear a coach, no, oh, yeah, the boy. And it was one of those maneuvers where, like, Jalen just being Jalen, baby, <laughs> just getting a shot to go down. But he was, uh, he, he was a fun one to talk to. There's the famous, like, I guess at the end when uh, ETSU won the, the – 
final was a final home game Wofford. It was final home game Wofford. He ends up grabbing the ball and then stands uh, on the the media tables on the far side. And there's a photo there with everyone just up in the air, kind of yelling, you know, and screaming in celebration. That that's the one photo of Gilon. I think uh, most people that, that's like the lasting shot that people kind of see. I think when they they think about Gilon going, but boy, he made. He made a lot of plays um, and won a lot of games for ETSU. If nothing else, he kept them in a lot of games to get them in position to win, or he won a lot of games. And, again, once him and T.J. Cromer kind of hit the, the yin and the yang as opposed to them, uh, you know, probably fighting in the practice court, you know, to working together in the practice court, I think once they turned the corner and how to play together, then I think the team came around and how to play together. And, obviously, the Steve Forbes – 24 win team just got kind of cranking at that point. I think we only have three more Buck Basketball buzzer beater blowouts before the official season is here. Of course, this Friday on the Buccaneer Sports Network, ETSU men's basketball versus someone. Who is it again? New exhibition game? Yeah. That's a great question. I gotta say, sure. <laughs> no, it's Katama. They'll be playing it's someone. Oh, it's Katama. It's Katama. Okay. They'll be playing someone on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, are we going to do a pregame? Uh, we are going to do a pregame. Wow, uh, you're going to have game. a UNCG. Michael Hewitt Jr. is on the roster for Catawba. Oh, okay. So that'll give me at least one guy I can talk about. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, I'll be doing research on that tomorrow. Then the official season is one week later. App State. Against Appalachian State. And then just two days after that, Tennessee on the SEC Network. Just fantastic time. It is. It's getting there. Crossover season on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Don't forget uh, Bold Prediction Recap. Shohei Otani has taken the MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are home. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are home watching a playoff with the rest of us. Bill McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Jamari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A 6'6", 125-pound three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17th green to our left. The 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds. To hit from the 18th to the 17th green and into the 17th month. All right, what do we get? What do we not get? I don't remember all of mine. You don't remember all yours? I know the one. I know one. I was just looking up to see. I hope they didn't because that would give me more false hope that my long-term prediction could come true that they made 24. Oh, Oklahoma State. You you're, are you on the wrong week? You're on the wrong week. Oh, yeah, we didn't have a game, and I forgot to yeah. change the thing. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Iowa State. Oh, oh, yeah, the cover behind. Yes, yes. Yeah. West Virginia. Oh, yeah. West Virginia. You got two <laughs> because 85-plus in the VMI Sanford game. You got that, too. 46-45. That looked like it was dead, much like. Yes, it did for a long time. Like for a long dead. time, yeah. Oh, you got yeah. two right. Titans yeah. lose by 10 or more. They actually end up winning, but they did lose their star running back. It sounds like perhaps for the season with a Joe. Well, I mean, if I'd have known Carson Wentz was going to throw left-handed passes, I would have changed my pick. I felt really great about my predict- uh, prediction in bold predictions. No, uh, performance in bold predictions coming into this segment. But now that you got two, my Richmond over New Hampshire does not look as good, even though it was a W. I'm three straight with getting a win in bold predictions. But, yikes. You got double two. digits already? You got double digits. You are <laughs> 10 and 
15, the Boom. NXT 3 and 22, because I said Detroit three. was going to beat Philadelphia yeah, look, in no, the NFL, not, uh, in no. NFL football. Well, in, Detroit was not playing that day. In any sport, maybe. It would have been bad. I don't know. That was a beatdown. It was I did not, and in fairness, I did not see a beatdown. I thought, well, okay, Philly wins, sure, but I did not see sure. beatdown. 44 to 6. And then Wofford and the Citadel win. I obviously got neither of those. Yeah, that Wofford Citadel game is going to be interesting. Coming up in, is that, what, 12 days from now? Yes. On the 13th or yes. 13 days or whatever? Oh. I mean. I will have I will, I will have a bold prediction on that. I will think about that. I'm going to have a bold prediction on Can that. they tie? That would be perfectly fitting. Does the game not even get played? I don't know. Something weird. South Carolina happen. governor steps in and says no. Something. Maybe the football gods, the people that are in charge of football, whatever it is, will just be like, look, this is a disgrace. We can't do this. It's homecoming. ETSU VMI. Two ranked teams Saturday. We'll break it down on Thursday's edition of Sandos and the Sidekick. On the back of the air. Of course, that works.